Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Setacase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is very special, uh, very stressful for me. Uh, we have multiple guests, and that always freaks me out, but I think it's going to go well. Um, I'm really excited about this. I have with me Dr. Samuel Liebens and Dr. Kenneth Pierce, Kenny Pierce, and uh, we're going to be talking about the stuff that they both come on my podcast to talk about, but together, I'm really excited. We're going to be talking about Berkeleyan idealism, Hasidic idealism, how we figure out, uh, you know, if we live in in God's story, um, all sorts of fun stuff about God and his relation to the world and how we ought to think about it or how we can think about it. I'm stoked for it. If you guys like this podcast, then please consider becoming a Patreon patron or a YouTube member. There are two ways to support the show. If you guys like this type of content, if you want to see me continue, if you want to see me be able to buy dog food for my dog, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. That would be huge. Not going to uh, commodify myself too much today, but you guys know the drill. Please support the pod. Um, but without further ado, let's jump right in and talk about God is the author of the world and whether or not we live in his mind. All right, doctors Pierce and Liebens, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, guys. See, thank you. Um, so I'm not sure, like, super how this is going to go, but um, if if the audience is going to get if they get confused because we go too deep, there are two episodes with both of these scholars uh, solo where we're slowing down to explain terms. So go check those ones out. You can find the link in the description. But let's just kind of jump in and start chopping it up. Um, maybe real quick for Dr. Pierce, do you think that we live in God's mind? Uh, so I wouldn't express it quite that way. I think that our, uh, our existence is grounded in or dependent on God's act of willing. So God's kind of activity of willing that the world be is the reason why the world is. Uh, and it's a kind of continuous dependence. It's not a matter of God kind of causing the origination of the world. And I do kind of in the model that I've most seriously considered, it is uh, what I call history, the kind of complete chain of cause and effect events that, as it were, comes directly from God's willing. And it's our role in that in history that makes us exist. And so, so I think there's a kind of analogy to the uh, to thing about storytelling to characters existing because of the role that they have in a narrative. Um, but I wouldn't want to say quite exactly that we live in God's mind. Okay. Yeah. And and then uh, Dr. Lieben, to, to kind of summarize our last conversation, um, can you can you help us with that question? Do, do we live in God's mind? What do you think? So, I mean, te technically my position is yes and no. Right? <laughs> so, um, so for the sorts of reasons that, that uh, Tunis, um um, express, you know, because I agree with him that, that God's will is what grounds all things in being constantly. That leads me to conclude there's at least a sense in which all things are ideas in the mind of God, because I think that the sort of power that God has uh, over all things and that his will has over all things is characteristic of the power that the mind has over its ideas. Um, but I am careful uh, to distinguish between two perspectives upon reality, and each of those perspectives are 
you know, quite important and, and revelatory in their own ways, even though one is somehow more fundamental than the other, gives rise to the other. And, and therefore, I would put it this way, that from God's perspective, we are merely uh, ideas in his mind, uh, but, but that set of ideas gives rise to something like a story. And uh, in the narrative of the story, we, we are more than merely ideas. We, we are, you know, people of flesh and blood uh, living around freely in, in, in a world that this character called God created for us. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Um, again, folks, there are two episodes, like multiple hours going on uh, behind in those summaries. So go check those out. Um, but Dr. Pierce, so... In my last conversation with Dr. Liebens, we talked about uh, some arguments against like um, an external world outside of God's mind um, that I believe uh, Dr. Liebens and uh, Dr. Tyron Goldschmidt give um, from like perfect being theism. Like, uh, you know, God would have to create a perfect world because he's perfect, but there is no such thing as a perfect world because maybe that con- there's a problem with that concept. Therefore, he can't create a world outside of his head. Um, are, are you familiar with that argument? And if so, and if not, I, I'm going to pose it to you anyways, I guess. But well, what do you what do you make of that kind of argument that there, God can't create an external world? Yeah. Um, so to begin with, I love that paper. Um, and and I find this stuff it's it's really uh, it's really thought provoking. Um, but I wonder if so. The, so I think there's still a question about um, could God tell a bad story? Yeah. Right. And whether that would imply divine imperfection if God were to tell a bad story. Yeah. If, on the other hand, we say that there might be some sense in which this world is imperfect, um, but it's not imperfect considered as a story. Um, I'm not sure whether that uh, kind of prevents us from saying, well, even if we don't quite by the whole even if, if even if we don't think the um author fiction thing is as close to literal um maybe that's a good way of putting it as as it is on on sam and, and ty's view um if we don't think even if we don't think it's that quite that close to literal can't we perhaps make the same move and say that um as a story as a narrative as a way for history to go in fact this doesn't have the kinds of imperfections that we might at first think. Uh, we're kind of looking at it from the wrong perspective when we make those complaints. So I'm not sure whether that, I'm not sure whether I'm ultimately satisfied with that, but I just wonder kind of if it works in the one case, doesn't it work in the other? Can I, can I just clarify what you mean, Kenny? So is, is, the, is the thought that, well, look, uh, if, if you think that fundamentally the world is like a story in the mind of God, then still you've got this question, uh, you know, are there some sorts of stories a perfect God, you know, couldn't or wouldn't tell? And then if you fix the world qua story, if you're able to somehow justify um, God's having told this story despite its ugly scenes, maybe the same moves allow you to justify his creating it. Is, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I don't have an answer. I just wanted to be kind of... <laughs> right. and, yeah. and, you know, at the end of the day, it, it might, tur- it might turn out if we explore this in enough depth that the moral of the story is that, um, the, the, the two views differ only verbally. Right. Yeah. I think uh, it, it, intuitively Tone and I were thinking there were certain things that a storyteller would be aesthetically justified in 
in telling as a story uh, that perhaps wouldn't be so justified in, from his perspective, making real. Now, of course, that doesn't help us in the story because it's as real as anything else is in the story, but, but at least from God's perspective. Um, but I agree. I, 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 I agree. Uh, this requires uh, further investigation. And, and the, the question, you know, Parker's interested in what he, what he calls the authorial analogy. And the question is, right, you know, how literally to take the analogy? Is it really an analogy or is it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Oops. Of, course, I'm, of course, I'm going to agree that nothing could possibly be real the way that God is real or as real as God. Mm -hmm. um, that's going to be just a standard classical theistic view. Mm -hmm. um, and so, again, if the difference in levels of reality is part of what's making the difference to what God is justified or permitted to do. Mm -hmm. um, then that's going to potentially at least be usable by any classical theist who has that, that difference in level of reality. Yeah. I suppose at some point these might, as you, as you, yeah. uh, as you predict, it could be that these end up being notational variants on one another and, and that the, the, the disagreement is skin deep. I suppose I would like to get theists to recognize how radical their position is if they are as indeed they should be committed to the view that God is more real than everything else. Um, you know, and, and the question is uh, unpacking the consequences of that, of that distinction between God's reality and our own. Yeah. And it, can I just, just mention, this is the thing that is so fantastic about your book, the principles of Judaism it's and kind, you're always the kind of stuff. <laughs> but but it, it just, because it, it, the, the, like the basic principles are things that a lot of people would think, oh yeah, this is kind of a, a minimal form of, a minimal form of uh, Judaism and you're going to get close to analogous things in the other Abrahamic religions. Exactly. And, 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 and you make this, this case is kind of a, a disturbing case for a lot yeah. of things. Yeah. All <laughs> this crazy stuff just falls out of what looked like quite simple right. premises, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so I, I posed the, the same the same kind of question um, that Dr. Pierce posed to Dr. Liebens. Um, when during our conversation, I said, well, you know, what about a story? What if that's really what's in mind? What's what's in focus for God is um, not, you know, the number of palm trees or whatever that planning it talks about, but, but really the, the story. Um, and then I and, and Dr. Liebens was really like, you know, kind and fair and was like, yeah, that's a decent point. Um, but then I thought, why? Why create an external world at all if God could create this kind of world in his mind? Um, and well, so, Dr. Indeed. Yeah, it just it, if that kind of world can exist in God's mind, then what would be the point of creating externally? And when I press the authorial analogy too far, um, I, I think like, well, where does where does Middle Earth, where, where does the stories of Middle Earth actually exist? Is it in the print or is it in the mind of Tolkien? And I don't know because Tolkien's not around anymore, so we still have the stories. So, like, is it in the ether? Did you make an abstract object? I don't know. So, uh, Dr. Pierce, like, wh what do you make of um, just that question? Like, why, why would he create an external world if he could create it just in his mind? I guess. Yeah. Uh, so you get so an analogous point is made by Barclay. So uh, Nicholas Mulbron thought, um, well, God creates all these mind-independent bodies, but because mind-body interaction is impossible on his kind of dualist view. 
uh, it's God always who gives us the perceptions of the bodies whenever they're nearby. And Barclay says, what are the bodies doing in that story? Right? Like, what's the point? It's not like God, if you can think of it on a, a chess master type of analogy, that like it's only novice chess players, really, or amateurs, we need a chess board, right? Uh, really serious chess masters can play the whole game without moving the pieces around because yeah. they've got it in their heads. And, and God wouldn't be the kind of amateur who needs to be moving the pieces around to keep track of what perceptions to cause the way that God does on Mulbranch's view. Hmm. Um, but one thing that you mentioned here that's interesting about the, the Tolkien case is, of course, that Tolkien's characters uh, don't have an existence only in Tolkien's mind. Um, they become a kind of public common property of a, of a community. Mm -hmm. um, and exactly how the metaphysics of that works, and, and there's issues in philosophy of literature about right. kind of who, what's true of the characters, yeah. um, particularly if uh, kind of whoever controls the film rights is going off the rails or something. Um, the, you know, there are issues about that, but there's a, a community that those characters are, are communicated to. And this provides a close analogy to the difference between uh, Barclayan idealism and Hasidic idealism, right? That the, the Barclay thinks, um, there's some tricky questions about how exactly this works for Barclay, but somehow or other, these finite minds uh, don't seem on Barclay's view to exist just in God's mind. They seem Sorry. to have some other stronger, deeper form of existence so that there's, as it were, somebody outside God for God to tell the story to. Um, which is the thing that uh, on, on the Hasidic idealist view, and many scholars attribute a similar view to Jonathan Edwards, um, that, uh, that we too, the other finite minds, are uh, just exist as, as ideas in God's mind. So from God's perspective, he's just telling a story to himself. Uh, which is which is quite which is quite a big difference. I think it's worth pointing out just for the background of this um, that, that you know the philosophy of literature becomes super relevant. Um, you know, there are metaphysicians who think that um, the characters of a Tolkien uh, novel don't exist at all, um, and that and that everything we say, I mean, Kendall Walton has this kind kind of view. So everything we say about a fiction is false. It's just that some falsehoods that are kind of licensed as a game, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you know, it's not just uh, the game of pretending that uh, the characters exist and go to Mordor or whatever, like Mordor, sorry, or, uh, in this in the story itself. But then when we compare characters, oh, you know, and we say, oh, Tolkien created a really three-dimensional character when he created Baggins. Even, even that uh, is false, according to when Kendall Walton. That's, we're playing a game about playing the game called fiction when, we, when we're in, involved in literary theory. Clearly, uh, I think Kenny agrees with me um, that our talk about fictional characters does you know there are lots of metaphysicians i think kenny would be one of them i'm one of them things that i talk about fictional characters does commit us to the existence of these things they're not they're not people of flesh and blood but they're something right and that and, and the point that kenny's making that's a, a point i t i take uh, and i see the relevance of it perhaps the the disanalogy between the god case and the human case is that yeah once once a human author has created his or her characters 
it seems like an entire community is involved in sustaining them in being. Um, but we don't we don't have that in the in the classical case of God. Yeah. Um, unless, unless, you're, unless, unless you're Trinitarian. Chorus. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I think probably, I don't know if, if um, both of you would agree to this, but I, I think both of your models and uh, adapting in uh, classical theism are the ontological pluralism. I think maybe are, are Dr. Pierce, would you call yourself an ontological pluralist or are you committed to that view? Um, so I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't describe it that way, but this is another case where it might be a notational variant. Exactly. So, so I don't like to talk about degrees or kinds or sorts of being okay. because I want to just associate being with the existing quantifier and like everything exists. Um, and so, yeah, um, Klingons exist just like you and I do and Bilbo Baggins exist just like you and I do. They're not the same kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And they don't have the same degree of reality or fundamentality. So what I want to do is keep, partly just because it keeps the logical notation neat, um, is is keep kind of existence or being as one univocal concept mm-hmm. that applies to everything, including fictional objects and imaginary objects and so on. Um, but, but you then, sometimes you sometimes restrict the domain of the quantifier according yeah, to levels of fundamentality or you know. Right. And so we can actually use the degrees of reality as our quantifier restriction in order to say things like, uh, well, if Sherlock Holmes doesn't exist. And when we're talking more carefully, we'll even make that explicit by saying he doesn't really exist. Hmm. So I, I think I'm coming from a very similar place to you, Jenny. And, and until recently, I wouldn't have liked to use the term ontological pluralism for similar reasons. I mean, my my upbringing in in the waters of Bertrand Russell, um, uh, yeah, really lead me to want to, for there to be one quantifier, and to reject you know what what I think is a kind of pernicious and confusing distinction that that Meinl has, for example, between between existence and being. Um, I just I just want one type of existence. However, I, I do think that the theist is committed to God's being more real than us. Yeah. Uh, that does mean we have something like degrees of reality. I, you know, again, like you say, notational variant. I, I, I think, I think that could significantly be called a form of ontological pluralism because there are degrees of this thing called being. Uh, but there's a sense in which it's not, like you said, because we only have one quantifier and we and we 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 stick to that. So, you know, I, I don't know. On a, on a Monday, I might introduce myself as an ontological pluralist and a Tuesday, I might not. Well, so that, that was, that was um, I, I broached that for the audience who just got lost. I, I broached it because I wanted to, to just get some thoughts on imaginary uh, characters. I, I know, like we talked about, this is really crazy. Some people think they're abstract objects and all that. Um, but if we're going with the idea uh, that God has the most existence or is the most most real being i think probably it, it does seem like it brings in my nong's uh distinction between being and existence no no <laughs> i know and everyone freaked out now i i um josh Sijuade, i don't know who he got this from but he got it from someone i think we're just using different types uh, or different existential quantifiers just to say like you know it's i think it's uh like mathematicizing the qua move maybe and just being like well qua here it exists and quite not um, but so do, do fictional characters exist or have less being than us who have less being than God? What, what do yes. you guys make of that? 
But <laughs> <laughs> again, I want to say reality and not being there. Right? Reality. I don't yeah. want to talk about the truth of being. I want to talk about the truth of reality. But but look, if some if some Minongian says by being, I mean what you call being, and by existence, I mean what you call real being, the real existence. Then I'm going to say, well, we have a disagreement about how to represent this cleanly in first order logic. How best to represent this? Yeah. Well, so I yeah, I don't I don't guard as as keenly as you do, Kenny. Perhaps because I'm just not as rigorous. I don't I don't guard as keenly as you do the distinction between degrees of being and degrees of reality. I I kind of see them as the same thing. It's just I don't I don't make a distinction between being and existing and you know being in existence. Um. When I say that something has less being, I mean the same thing as as I say when when I think they exist, but they exist less fundamentally, which is in a sense to say they exist somehow less fully. But there's only, I still have only got one quantifier. It's the existential quantifier, and and when I'm being least discerning, uh, I cast that, that domain the domain of that quantifier as broadly as you like, you know, and it captures things with any degree. Uh, of being or reality, and and there are times where where we're a bit more discerning, and we and we we qualify the uh, the quantify the quantify. We restrict the range of its of its uh, domain, you know. And sometimes we quantify a, a domain that only has God in it, you know, the most mm -hmm. real. Okay, so the fundamentality I think is really helpful because then we could say, well, look, we mean God is most fundamental or the only fundamental thing, and everything else is derivative. And then we go in for you know, some of the work that, that Dr. Pierce has done on contingency type stuff. I, and I think we still probably get the qualitative distinction between uh, the fundamental level, God, and everything that's non-fundamental. Does that still work? Do we still get that, like, qualitative dif distinction between God and the rest? Yeah, I mean, I think um, if you think about fundamentality as I do in terms of grounding, yeah. Um, you know, God God stands uniquely at the root of the grounding hierarchy, so we can make a, a sharp distinction between God and whatever is not God. Um, it is a hierarchy with multiple levels, right? So within the kind of not God, there we we in turn have levels of degrees, and depending on how the chains work out, we might it might not always be clear what counts as the same level or whatever. Yeah, but. Uh, but we can make a very sharp distinction between God and not God because God stands alone at the root. Is, is the grounding, in, in your view, is the grounding relationship, is it like an inverted view of like the chain of being? Like usually I always think of the chain of being as like God being up top, but, but this is like no grounding and then things are less grounded maybe? or Yeah, I mean, people use the great um, chain of being obviously as a, a metaphor, an image. Yeah. And how it gets cashed out um, in kind of metaphysical detail varies. Sometimes it looks more like a claim about value, right? Oh, yeah, um, right. But, but of course, because it's coming out of a Neoplatonic tradition where being and goodness are one of the same. So degrees of being just are degrees of goodness. Yeah. Um, so sometimes I, sometimes I start seeing the attractions of that view. But, um, but yeah, it's, it is going to look like uh, it is going to look something like that, where we have a kind of derivation from God um, and grounding as an image is a building up image, whereas the chain is a descending down. Is descending well, and and maybe uh, maybe something is communicated by that or kind of hinted at, which is in the in the Neoplaton in the Neoplatonist vision of the great 
chain of being, classically, there's no volition involved. God's being literally overflows and it flows down. It, it, God doesn't even need to be aware yeah. of the things beneath it yeah. to which to which his overflow is giving being. Whereas in the picture that, that Kenneth describes, you know, God is is um, willing, actively willing things into being. Um, um, so maybe the 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 choice of, of the the direction in the image is suggested. Uh, the, the overflow suggests something non-volitional and somehow God's being at the bottom, kind of like holding things up, suggests as, as, as images do, uh, something more volitional. True. Yeah. yeah, that's helpful. And of course, there's this, we stand in this long tradition here of, uh, of people in the Abrahamic traditions trying to get some kind of voluntary creation into the bigger Neoplatonist uh, pictures uh, in a way that doesn't happen in someone like Plotinus. Exactly. That, I mean, that's, that's part of what bothered the, the scholastic uh, Muslim Christians and Jews with, with Plotinus, right? Uh, was, was the involuntariness uh, of the creation. I, I'd like to say, I think a, a big difference potentially between uh, Kenny and myself, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that as we go up and down this kind of ladder of fundamentality, right? On your picture, all that changes is literally how fundamental or how fundamentally the, the, the things on that rung of that level, uh, that, so, uh, that level of the ladder, you know, exist. How fun, how fun, or how, how large a degree of reality they have, to, yours, to use your language. Whereas on my, on my picture, it seems like something else is changing which is that from, from God's perspective, um, you and I are more like um, impure abstractor, right? Um, what do I mean? Um, you said very helpfully, Kenneth, that, that you know, fictional characters exist, but they're different sorts of beings than we are, different sorts of entities. And uh, as, as Amy Thomasson points out in her book on the metaphysics of fiction, they're a very strange type of entity because they share some of the properties that we generally associate with concrete entities. For instance, they seem to be created uh, you know, at a time. They didn't exist before they were created. Those are properties you'd associate with, with concrete beings. But they also seem to have some of the properties you tend to associate with abstract beings. For instance, you know, they don't have a location in space. You can't bump into them. They, 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 they're not causally efficacious, right? Um, so what she, she thinks the ontology of fiction forces us to open up an intermediary uh, uh, category between the, the abstract and the concrete, she, you know, so she, she calls them impure abstractor. Um, now, I want to say that you and I, we, we're concrete uh, relative to... Uh, the rung of reality in which we live, right? Because in the story of the world, we're concrete beings. But from God's perspective, we are impure abstractor. Whereas it looks like on your metaphysics, all the changes as we go up and down the ladder is de degrees of reality. For me, it looks like something else is changing too. Like which metaphysical categories do we belong to? Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, I need to think more about... Um... I guess about the metaphysics of fiction to think about whether I disagree with you because kind of everything, because I agree with you that, um, everything, all the kinds of things that we want to say are true of me. 
Um, you can also say are are true of Frodo within the story, right? Yes. He's made of flesh and blood. He requires food to survive. There are biological yes. facts about him. Yes. And what's hairy seats? Frodo has hairy <laughs> I didn't want to say it, but yeah. <laughs> even, even though those aren't, um, even though those sorts of things aren't explicitly described in the story, in fact, they're they're yes. nevertheless true of him in the in the fiction. Um, and so, um, so I'm not sure whether, uh, whether that's really going to be different. Um, something that complicates the matter is I think we both think of God as atemporal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, at least I, I try to stay neutral on that question. So at the very least, I want to make room for his atemporality. Yeah. Right. So then it's going to, so then you're not going to have the like um, time at which from, from perspective, from outside perspective, perspective. it's not a time at which the characters begin to exist. True, true, true. Um, yeah. So I'm not, uh, so I'm not quite sure what to say about that, but it is true that I don't exclusively use the um, fiction for talking about the kind of grounding that's the issue here. You know, I think it's also similar to the kind of relation, like, to the kind of statue clay relation mm -hmm. um, and that sort of thing where you don't always have those, uh, those sorts of features. Right. And you, I think you think that we have a degree of creaturely freedom, even from God's perspective. I've been really cagey on that um, because I'm really not sure. Um, and the, the thing is, well, I guess I do want to say, yes, even from God's perspective, it's correct to say that we're free, but it might, but that might be true of, uh, in a way of the characters in a story, I think. Yeah. Um, yes. so, and actually you had some helpful remarks about, about mm -hmm. the way that kind of, you know, characters once created are often they surprised they're authors, can't they? Because they yeah. make, they're perceived as making demands on the author. I have yeah. some work under review on this, actually. Well, I'd love to see that. Jenny. Sort this out a bit more. Um, so my, I think, it, yeah, it is correct to say that we have some kind of freedom, even from God's perspective. But even from our perspective, I'm not sure whether our freedom is libertarian or compatibilist. And, and so I, because I'm nice. kind of always going back and forth on that, I've, I've been real, uh, real cagey about it in my public work. You know, I, I sometimes imagine my younger self going crazy with me about all sorts of things. But one of them is this. I, I was very committed to libertarian free world. Me too. Like, so committed that, like, if you didn't have that, then what's the point of anything? Like, <laughs> you know, and now I'm, I just, I find myself caring less. I, I'm not quite sure. And compatibilism doesn't seem as problematic to me anymore. But it's just funny as one, as one progresses philosophically, the things that one used to find, you know. Yeah, I used to think I used to think that I, you know, when I started studying philosophy, I thought I could just interest libertarian freedom, right? It's just like yeah. make points yeah. and you see. Um, yeah. And I just the longer the longer I think about it, the more I think I don't even I'm not even sure what libertarian freedom would be. No, no. <laughs> you guys are speaking my language. This is amazing. This podcast really took a great turn here. I love it. <laughs> well, um, did we did we choose that? And what does that yeah. mean? Yeah, right. It's all part of the story yeah, in God's mind. Um, I want to, I want to, there's so many that I want to jump in on and I hope I can get to them, but we'll see. Um, one for Sam, uh, if we're impure abstracta, do you think that we're like multiply instantiable? Like, do you think that we, could God be telling other stories with us right now or, uh, oh. what, 
Oh, that's an amazing question. I've never thought about it. Um, and I, and that deserves, that deserves more thought. Um, I have said that the universe should be looked as like a series of overlapping stories mm. because there's, there's the story that, that you Parker, are the main character of and God's telling that story. And I'm just an extra who sometimes appears on your amazing podcast, right? <laughs> but then yeah. God's telling my story, you know, and I'm the, I'm the main character of that story. And likewise, we Kenneth. And, and our stories are set in the same universe and we're interested in each other's or, you know, or, or support, hopefully supporting characters, uh, but, you know, in our own stories with main characters. But I think you're asking a more radical question. You, you say, you know, could God tell a story about a completely different universe that doesn't overlap with our universe, but still has me as a character in it? Whoa. <laughs> I don't know. I've not thought about it. I, 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 I don't think I've said anything that would rule that possibility out. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I suppose there's a sense in which relative to this story, that story's not happening. Because it's not an overlapping, it's not, it's not a story that overlaps with our story in quite the right way. Oh, yeah. It would be like, um, it, it would be like, like a Lewis, Lewisian uh, concrete universe. We could never like, get like to that. it or something. That's something like that. But the question is, would it be more than just a counterpart relation between me and that? And, that yeah. and would it actually be transworld identity? But nonetheless, things which are true of Sam in that story are palpably not true of Sam in this story. You know, yeah. so... so but you have access to it when you dream. That's the uh, Doctor Strange view. Oh, yeah. Yes, of yeah, 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 yeah. So um, that, that, that's a very that's a very cool uh, thing to think about. I mean, I uh, I do have this view about God's God's be, you know the sto the story that God is telling with us isn't necessarily finished because uh, He could edit earlier scenes, right? I, mm. I think that God has the power to change the past, but I tend to look at that as being something that's happening in the story of our world. The story of our world is the story of a world in which there's this character called God who has the power to change the past. Uh, but you could also look at it more fundamentally. Uh, God, God is, is, is the author of a story and the story is in draft. It's, it's not finished yet. <laughs> That's fascinating. Well, the, that point that you brought up about us being main characters in our own story is really, I think, helpful to kind of stave off some of the, like, psychopathy that comes when you when you think like am i in the truman show and because yeah. i think a lot of us get that feeling especially philosophers because we think about this stuff but you're like looking around the corner looking to see if you can see the cameras or looking to see if your family members break character because you do have this feeling of being the main character in a story in a sense but i think there's yeah. a big i think there's an implicit threat in religion that uh a threat actually of hubris you know, we think we know God. We think we know what God wants for us. We're the enlightened ones, the true religion, and all those people don't know what the truth is. And it can lead, I think, to a terrible sort of arrogance that I think even borders on idolatry. You know, mm. uh, and and the question is how to how to live a life that uh, you know in relationship with God, the Creator of everything, and not to allow that to get to one's head, to get to one's head on the one hand and lead to hubris. On the other hand, you know, religion can make you feel so small and terrible and nothingy, you know, that I'm just a gnat in this, in this, you know, infinite universe. And I think um, this authorial analogy is really useful at striking a balance because it says, well, I am the main character of the story in which I live, 
And God is telling this entire story just to, to unpack my own narrative, huh. but he's telling 8 billion other stories. Yeah. <laughs> and in those stories, I'm just an extra. And I, I think that kind of um, looking at the world you know, through, through these multiple lenses can, can help a person of faith to, to navigate uh, 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 between hubris and humility. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Pierce, anything to add on that? Or if not, I got another one for you. Yes. Just that, uh, just that we should all pray that we don't get one of these gritty reboots that are all the rage these days. Yeah, amen. Well, if we do, I'd, I know who I'd like to be played by. I'll draw up a short list of... That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Um, for all the, the movie execs that listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> David, you ever published a book with Routledge, Kenny? Hmm? Have you ever put, published a book with Routledge? Uh, just the, the recent debate book. Yeah. Okay. The recent debate. So if you look at your Routledge contract, it will, it includes the film rights. Oh, yeah. Wow. So, so Routledge owned the film rights to my book on Bertrand Russell and the nature of proposition. So if there are any Hollywood connects out yeah. there, who'd like to make that into a movie. That's awesome. Yeah. They could do a reboot of the, the God debate book and they could add in some swords and it'd be fantastic. <laughs> I think you and Graham Whoppy, that'd be a great movie, Ken. That would be. I'd watch it at least. You get one, yeah, one or two. Right. Um, well, Dr. Pierce, um, do you think that we can still use your arguments from contingency um, if Hasidic idealism turns out to be the case? Oh, sure. Yeah. It's, um, right. It's, it's all about, you know, what kind of structure do you have to have to arrive at ultimate explanation? Mm. Of, of what we observe, right? And the fact is that on any of these views, um, what we observe is, is real or exists from our standpoint. Mm -hmm. And as real as we are. As real as we are, potentially. Yeah, as, as real as we are. And so the question is, uh, what kind of, of grounding or explanation, what kind of explanatory structure would suffice to give a complete explanation of that reality of what's real from our perspective? Okay. Right. And, and, um, it's going to come back to something like God. Um, I think there are more, so something I've, I've said in a number of places, I think there are kind of more possibilities for what the ultimate explainer might look like epistemic possibilities hmm. that haven't been as thoroughly explored as the classical theistic view. Yeah. I think the prospects are not for using something purely naturalistic to do the work. But there's a lot of kind of non-traditional theisms and other kind of, you know, that are out there in the epistemic possibility space that haven't been explored very thoroughly. But I think we're we're going to need something like that at the root is, yeah. is what's going on in that. Would 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 you throw in like um like like uh, cosmopsychism? Would you say that's like a naturalistic explanation, or do you think that's one of the live options? Well, so it depends on what we mean by naturalism. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. So when I think about naturalism, I'm thinking like, what is the the rival view that is attractive and well-motivated? Like when I'm thinking about naturalism as opposed to theism, what's the like the view that's kind of tempting in a certain certain mood? Um, and, and it's the view that kind of in the light of the success of science, maybe we just shouldn't believe anything but science. Yeah. Right. That is that. And and spelling out the details of that are are complex, but and if if you're going from that view that like we're rejecting metaphysics that goes beyond science, I think you have a hard time 
in the current state of science defending something like cosmopsychism. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a kind of, um, if we get a, a panpsychist pantheism, right, where kind of all the bits of consciousness add up to one big consciousness, yeah. um, that would be, I guess, among the views that I'm categorizing as non-naturalistic. Um, but that might be disputed by some of its proponents. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and, and then there's the like converse of that, where it's like the, I think, I think that, that like the universe itself is conscious and then the consciousness derives down from it. So there's like the right. down or up view. Yeah. Yeah. I, I that's technical too. That's as a, technical a matter term. of, as a matter of policy in recent years, I, I steer away from using the, the word, uh, natural or supernatural because until we've completed the natural sciences, we like, huh, we don't, huh. you know, uh, you care to appreciate this in particular because of his, his studies in early modern, but the philosophy, but you know, the Leibniz Clark, um, um, letters, Leibniz describes Newton's force of gravity as like occult magic, right? Right. And even though science has come on since Newton and, and actually we, we no longer tend to think of gravity as a force so much as, as like the effect of, of dense objects, you know, over the shape of space, I still think very few people would look at Newton's suggestion today and say, oh, that's, that's occult magic, you know? Mm. Um, uh, so, so like what strikes us as natural or supernatural changes as, as science changes. So I, mm. Of course, Leibniz, or of course. Einstein did famously call action at a distance spooky. Yes, yeah, 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 right. At a distance, but and but in that case, he's he's talking, I think, about quantum entanglement, right? Which he which he he hates the idea of, right? Uh, but of course, he got rid of the. It's he, got rid, he, he got rid. He got rid of Newton's reaction in, oh, in, in gravitation. Right. So, that's right. right. That's gravity. right. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, so that's that's basically like uh, I, I believe that's like uh, like Hempel's dilemma of like, well, look, either it's complete now or we're going to complete in the future, but like. Yeah, like hold off until, until you until get there. Until we've completed physics, it's hard to know what physicalism really is. Till we've yeah. completed the natural well. sciences, it's hard to know what naturalism really is. Yeah. Um, you know, um, I I would look at cosmopsychism as a sense as a as a. I mean, my intuitions would would say, oh, that's perfectly naturalistic. But I suppose other people would say, no, what are you talking about? Some <laughs> mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, kicking kicking one back to you, Dr. Liebens, um do you, so I, I, it would depend on the type of Barclian idealism, I guess, but you, um, one of your motivations for Hasidic idealism is that, uh, it looks like from our depiction of God, he has the kind of control over reality that a thinker does over their own thoughts. Yeah. Um, and so therefore you, you, you know, internally, that's where the universe exists or in least, God's mind. Or, or at least God has the, the type of, uh, control over, uh, concrete objects that that would be sufficient to render them ideas in the in the mind uh, okay. i'm not sure okay. that i have quite as much control over my ideas even as god <laughs> that they his, you know. for sure yeah um well so what a, on, on barclay and idealism uh couldn't he still have the same kind of control like because we are ideas um and to be is to be perceived like maybe i'm getting yeah, barclay and idealism wrong but control over our uh, for, for Barclay, God would have that type of control over the things that we call material objects. Uh -huh. And, and he basically does material objects, you know, to put Barclay crudely, material objects are bundles of ideas, ultimately 
grounded or rooted in the mental activity of God. Mm. But, but you and I on, on Barclay's view, and this comes back to what Kenneth was saying about Barclay, he seems to make room for the existence of an audience, right? Us, uh, and how exactly we're tied in. You know, sometimes, I mean, you know, Barclay much better than me, Kenneth. I mean, when I look at it, it's almost as if he, he wants to say that our minds exist on, on, on a level with, with mm-hmm. God's, right? That we don't, we don't enjoy less reality than God does. Although mm. he can't say all that much about minds because they are for him notions rather than ideas. But, he, uh, but Barclay thinks there's, there's little that we can know or say about, about minds directly, I suppose. But, um, but they, they don't fall for Barclay. Our, our minds do not fall under God's control in the way that material objects do. So that would be a really big distinction is that like control over all the furniture of reality is yeah. it looks like it's the same on both, but not yeah. us because we're it's not, for, not, not subjects. Yeah. Chris, can you help us out with that? Yeah. So, so Barclay very carefully avoids questions about free will and predestination. Um, hmm. In Barclay's lifetime, it actually, he eventually became a bishop himself, but there actually was, it actually was against the law for anyone below the rank of to preach a sermon on predestination. Wow. Because predestination was like one of the major issues in the civil wars, um, you know, between Cromwell and the and the royalists and so forth, and so they actually, so it actually was like a really, really touchy issue, and he really carefully avoids it even in his mature writings as a, a bit. Um, but he does affirm pretty explicitly a univocal notion of God, so he thinks that God is a spirit in the same sense that we are spirits, though with an infinite difference of degree. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's quite, he's uh, in later writing, 1732, he's quite explicit on that point. About the difference of degree of, of what? Uh, of knowledge and power and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So but not, not, not of reality. He doesn't, he doesn't speak in those terms. No. No. Um, they, yeah, so he says that that God is a spirit, um, but not. He says something about not in the same perfect, in the same imperfect manner or degree. So God is a perfect and infinite spirit, but um, his infinity for him is like mathematical notion of, of ratio. It's like yeah. degrees. Um, now. And in my work on Barclay, I've argued that Barclay holds that in certain ways we collaborate with God in constructing physical objects, and that Barclay needs to hold that view in order for his anti-skeptical strategies to work. Um, and so actually, Barclay thinks that the world, this is coming back to this authorial analogy, Barclay thinks that the perceived world is literally a discourse spoken by God. So the material world is, and I say literally purpose, it's, it's structure is a grammatical structure and it, it is a language and we learn it the same way that we learn languages like English in childhood. So God, God has laid down these parameters that are gram- grammatical in form. Yeah. But, but I've, I've argued that Barclay endorses a kind of publicity of language thesis. Hmm. And so it turns out that in order to create the language of nature, God has to instill in us certain interpretive habits. And without our kind of, and the language kind of can't be constituted without our practice of interpreting it the way we do. 
And so we kind of parse the language by grouping ideas into objects according to certain rules. Uh, and all of this is part of how the perceived world is constituted. Easy, easy. Well, so that's that's really um, super fascinating. And I'm wondering, uh, trying to like synthesize this stuff, is that compatible with like some of the work that's going on in um, in like information theory or those who would say that like fundamentally everything is math? Um, those kind of things, like could that count as the language or does it have to be like a, is it like, is it Hebrew that we're all like made of like Hebrew symbols or something? So, so the language, the, the letters of the language for Berkeley, I mean, it's useful to compare with Galileo. So, so Galileo famously says that the characters, the letters of the book of nature are geometrical figures. Yeah. And, okay. And Berkeley is denying that because oh. he, in a certain way is opposed to this mechanistic view of the world. Okay. He thinks the letters are sensible qualities, huh. like redness and roundness and so forth, as detected by our senses. But he does think, at one point, he describes Newton's Principia as the best grammar manual of the language of nature. He mm. calls it a grammar manual. And so somehow the math is coming in at this higher level of abstraction where you try to give a precise statement of the grammar of nature. And in that same passage where he describes Newton's Principia as a grammar, he also draws the distinction between the native speaker's knowledge and the grammarian's knowledge. That's really fascinating because like because you could say the sensible qualities like our qualities like like red or whatever is, you know, it's really just a wavelength and you can describe it mathematically. But then you get like old school Frank Jackson coming through and being like, well those aren't the same things because that's phenomenal versus so so right. I don't know. And so his view is going to be that's some kind of abstraction that's constructed by linguists or grammarians, right? Okay, okay, okay. Um, in this, that is, that can kind of be distinguished between, you know, there's the sounds that native speakers make and the way psychologically native speakers process the language. Hmm. And then there's all these abstractions that linguists construct in order to give kind of simple and precise rules for how the language functions. Hmm. And that's the distinction Barclay thinks exists between the ordinary person and the physicist in the interpretation of nature. Interesting. Interesting. So I do, I do think in the Hasidic tradition, I mean, one needs to, to know how literally to take them, but they, they, they do speak, Parker, just like you said, about the world being built out of the Hebrew letters. Indeed, actually recombinations of the 10 statements that God made in creating the world in Genesis 1. Although if you count, he only makes nine, but the rabbis find a way of, of, of making one of them into two. There are 10, of course there are 10, um, nice round number. Um, I don't know how, I don't know how literally to take them, but I, I think that there's at least a leaning towards thinking of the world as linguistic through and through that, that, that God is telling a story. Stories are sets of sentences. So it's not quite the Barclayan picture that you get of kind of God, God kind of, um, bringing into being phenomenal content by like vividly imagining something, such as telling a story, like uh, taking certain sentences and saying, you know, let's say these are true for the sake of the story. Um, um, I just wanted to say, I love this idea about uh, Barclay and discourse. This, this kind of must be your book on Barclay and philosophy of language. Yeah. Uh, what's that called again? The title is Language and the Structure of Barclay's World. Yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 one day you and I will discuss it after my having studied it carefully because it sounds really, really important. 
But um, what's interesting is Barclay was a contemporary of some of the founders of the Pacific movement. They, they, weren't, in, they weren't in conversation with one another, but it's at the same time. And um, some of the early Hasidim, most of them speak in the ways that I'm, I, that I'm trying to um, unpack. You know, the world is a story in the mind of God, and, and ultimately, you know, only God's mind is in control, and et cetera, et cetera. But some of them do talk as if um, what the story means is up to us to interpret, mm. as, if, as if we're somehow in a collab collaborative. Uh, I don't know how to render that consistent with the view that actually from God's perspective, we don't exist, right? Are these two different streams of Pacific thought? Are they confused about something? Like but it's just interesting to know that, that some do talk in that way, that, you know, God, God somehow lays down um, certain parameters, but it's in collaboration with us that the meaning of this whole thing is filled in. Uh, I'll, I'll have to come back to it once I've studied your book yeah. more carefully. Can I, can I ask a historical question? So, so, there's this funny thing that happened that in the in the Western tradition, it is very hard to find any clear example of an idealist. Right, there are disputed examples like Gregor of Nyssa, yeah. or like how does Platonism relate to idealism? But it's it's hard to find a clear example before the late 17th century. Yeah, and then you suddenly get this, this group of people apparently developing it independently. Independently, yeah. Leibniz, Barclay, Collier. Uh, there's a dispute about whether, about how independent Edwards' development was. His mm -hmm. idealist statements seem to be before he knew about Barclay. Mm -hmm. And so these, these Hasidic uh, rabbis are also developing it independent. I'm pretty certain it's independent. Yeah. yeah. Do they, to what extent are they in contact with the same intellectual milieu? Like, do they know about Montaigne and Descartes? Are the reasons why idealism becomes plausible to them? Could they be the Just same? No, these are... These are some of the, you know, most closeted Eastern European Jews. It, they didn't come from the enlightened Western European com Jewish communities, the Hasidic thinkers. Those, you know, those Jews, the Jews in Western Germany, you know, in Germany and in, and in, and in the UK and in, in France, uh, they would have been reading secular philosophers. They would have known about Descartes. And, you know, it's hard for me to believe that these people in in these kind of peasant villages in the Ukraine and Poland. And, and it's hard for me to imagine that they, they knew, they knew their Descartes from their Leibniz, from their Spinoza, <laughs> but maybe I'm wrong. I, I'm not a historian of the period, but, but it is hard for me to believe that, you know, that they, that they really had anything more than a passing acquaintance, if that's with the names of these great people. Right. So it's, it's just, it's interesting because these, these other guys, I tend to think, there must have been something in the intellectual climate yeah. that claims why the idea's time is um, yeah. But if the if the Hasidic rabbis are not are in a totally separate intellectual milieu, then yeah. it would be kind of just a coincidence that it happened at the yeah, same time. At the same time. Like although there is a story to tell perhaps about the influence of Far Eastern thinking uh, yeah. over Europe at that time and, and I know that some people have done some research into that and that, and that kind of popular, uh, so not, not, um, it's not that the Hasidic rabbis were, were reading any Sanskrit texts, but the kind of rumors about what was, you know, rumors about what Eastern philosophy had to teach were kind of percolating. Again, I, I don't know. I mean, to what extent, you know, like, um, to, to what extent had had Hindu and Buddhist thought been heard of in in 
in Western Europe in these periods? Um, there's there's a little bit of limited knowledge of Buddhist philosophy. There's more knowledge of Neo-Confucianism. Right. Because um, there's a bunch of that stuff in Bale. And Barclay actually, um, Barclay actually mentions in late works Neo-Confucian philosophers. Um, they, and Locke mentions them too. The, the Europeans call them the literati, um, the, the scholars of China. So that's kind of what they had the most information about. Leibniz was actually considered the leading Protestant expert on China. Really? Yeah, he wrote a book, A Discourse on the Natural Theology of the Chinese. Amazing. Wow. Um, and Mulbranch also wrote a book called A Dialogue Between a Christian Philosopher and a Chinese Philosopher. Yeah. Um, as, as, when you get as late as Schopenhauer, then sure. you've got then you've got like popular popular Hindu thought has made it into kind of you know Western. Right, and there is an argument about whether Hume could have been influenced by Buddhist ideas. Really? Wow. Uh, yeah, because there was so Hume when he kind of went on a retreat to finish writing the treatise. He went and stayed actually this um, like Jesuit center where the um, the guy the Jesuit who had been in I think it might be modern day Nepal in somewhere had uh, had like brought back his notes too and this guy the story is this this Jesuit shows up in you know somewhere in South Asia and he says you know I want to tell you about our religion. And they said, we will listen to everything you have to say as soon as you spend three years studying our religion in our belief. Good wow. for them. And he said, and, he's, and, and good for him for saying, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> right? And, right. and so that's what he did. And he brought back all of his notes and Amazing. was at the place where that guy's notes were. Wow. I see. So um, Hume was there. But, but we don't know whether he actually looked at them at all. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, so... so uh... I raised that only because you, you try and find. Sorry, Pat, you didn't. Oh no, no worries. Go ahead. You, 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 it, it is a mystery why in, in the, the Muslim, Jewish, and Christian medieval period, it's hard to see any rationalist who who you could say, oh, there's an idealist. Maybe in some of the more East mystical texts, things right. that sound a bit more. But there's this whole tradition in in India, Buddhist and Hindu uh, idealism, and. Why, why all of a sudden uh, do these, do these um, ideas emerge in uh, Western Europe, the New World, and, and Eastern Europe simultaneously? Uh, interesting question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but to br bringing us back to like a classical theist uh, type, type things and uh, the debate maybe between an external, like a an idealism where there's an external world, like a Barclayan idealism and a Hasidic idealism where the world exists in God's mind. Um, if you're a classical theist, it, to me, it seems like there might be um, a parody like Breaker uh, or something like that. If you think that God's thoughts are his being, like if, if, if you're going for simplicity and you think like, well, no, everything in God is God, including his thoughts. Uh, Dr. Lieben said like, well, last time we talked, he was like, well, yeah, God is not his thoughts. Um, Dr. Pierce, I wonder what, what, what you would make of that. Do you think that God is his thoughts? This is a really big concern for me. This is why I'm like, I'm, I'm like loosely holding on to uh, simplicity, but I, I love like theistic conceptual realism type stuff and grounding stuff in How God's mind. Kenny. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so, so I tend to think, I tend to think that we can think of, um, of God's thoughts and God's will 
as kind of, um, you know, emanating from God in, in sure. ways similar to the um, creation. Uh, it's how I, I tend to think about it in terms of, uh, in terms of just being able to make some kind of sense out of it. Hmm. Have trouble understanding the really strong divine simplicity views you get in, in people like Ibn Sina uh, or Aquinas. Yeah. Um, and of course, they they would say, well, of course, you can't understand it as a, a finite discursive thinker, right? But um, but I tend to think of the uh, the kind of essences, uh, the essences of possible things as somehow emanating from God um, in a way that's logically prior to the creation. Okay. Um, are they, yeah. So I don't want to press you too much. Cause it's not like this is, you've written like a ton on it or anything like that, but so your, God, your God can be as simple as you like, basically, because these, cause the thoughts and wills are, are things that, that are downstream of God. Yeah. Something like that. But they're, um, they're like restricted or restrained by like his nature, which is simple. Right. Uh, yeah, so there, so well, so everything, everything that can possibly exist has to be capable of following from the divine nature somehow because the divine nature necessarily stands at the root, yeah, uh, of existence. So we got, we got like, um, like his free knowledge and stuff, um, his natural knowledge. Do you, I forget, like, do you go in for middle knowledge? Um, so. I'm pretty convinced that God has knowledge of counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. Uh -huh. That's all you mean by middle knowledge. But of course, that could be true on a compatibilist view as well. Right. Yeah. And some compatibilists take the counterfactuals of creaturely freedom to be free knowledge, and others like Leibniz take them to be pretty much natural knowledge. Um, so I kind of, I've recently come to take the Molinist view more seriously. Oh, no. Um, not actually because I think it makes us freer than the compatibilist view. I'm not convinced that it does. Yeah. Um, but actually because of these sort of reflections on the nature of, on the relation of authors to the characters. Yes, man, that's good. A better model of for how to mm. think of our relation. Like when you're unpacking a character, you're kind of unpacking all these conditionals, right? You know, how would they act in this situation? And yes. Well, and something that I like about that analogy is that it's not literally impossible for the author to make the character do something else than what the character seems the author to demand. It's not literally impossible. It just somehow violates the integrity of the fiction. Yeah. And that seems like what we want to say about God and human free will. Yeah. He could make us do anything, but there's a limit to what he can make us do without uh, violating our integrity as characters and and, and that might be how we feel god we might feel that god does violate the integrity of pharaoh yeah. for example in yeah in in the exodus narrative when he hardens his heart hmm. you know it just goes to goes too far uh, i mean i'm not criticizing god but goes too far <laughs> if what you want to do is preserve uh, um the integrity of, of pharaoh well so so this is really fascinating because um certain things like in the new testament like the conversion of paul it seems like it's almost like deus ex machina, like, bam, like I'm changing your whole character. And in that case, you know, if you go for like reasons, responsiveness and free will or something like that, you'd say, well, no, he, he didn't have the, he didn't own the mechanism by which he came to those views. And you're like, okay, then he's not morally responsible. But in that case, I don't want to say he's morally responsible for his salvation anyways. So I, that one doesn't matter. The Pharaoh case, I would be like, uh-oh, like if he holds Pharaoh responsible, but he 
mess with his integrity. I would want to say like maybe he presented him with his goodness and that hardened his heart, but he knew what it would take, but he didn't like override. But 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 yeah, I, I the points yeah well taken just freaks me out. I mean, I, I think Paul was overwhelmed, but I guess you know had he had a more evil nature, he could have you know he could have resisted. Yeah, uh, you know. He he went blind, and and it was only when the disciple comes and prays for him, his eye, you know, his eyes, they open. you know, maybe he said, "No, I'm going to stay blind. I hate that Jesus guy." <laughs> <laughs> there was yeah. some choice, but but, but the whole the whole character, his whole character was based on the story, right? Like the whole his whole entire life led up to that moment. Yeah, I mean, you can look at Paul. I mean, look, I'm not Christian. <laughs> I know you know a lot here. That's good. You know, but you look at Paul and you say. Um, his anti-Christian stage is part of what makes his story so compelling. hundred percent. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a terrible story in the Talmud that, that Kenny Lamoke has equated it in my book when, when Moses gets to see into the future in the Talmud, uh, it's a story about Moses gets to see in the future this great rabbinic figure called Rabbi Akiva who was roughly a contemporary of Jesus, a little younger than Jesus. Um, he, he was killed in the Hadrianic persecutions and, and Moses gets to see his, his martyrdom. And um, God says, you know, Moses are like, what, you know, why did you do that to Rabbi Akiva? Why didn't he get that? Why did he get that terrible ending? He was such a righteous person. And, and God's answer to Moses in the story is, shut up, stuck, right? It means shut up. Uh, um, so it so it rose up in my mind before me, hmm. which I unpack as like in the authorial analogy that no, if you really understand Rabbi Akiva's life from the point of view of an author. This is terribly tragic. That's part of why God's uncomfortable with the question and says, shut up. It's not mm-hmm. a nice thing for God to have to confront. But, but actually, um, Rabbi Akiva was a zealot and his death as a martyr is somehow, it, there's a poetic integrity to his life. It's a terrible, mm-hmm. terrible thing to say if you're a fellow human being, but God from his authorial distance can can speak that way. And I suppose I'm saying something similar about Paul, that like his, his, you know, if it had been someone who'd been less anti-Christian, the story would never have been as compelling. Right. Right. right? If, yeah. if, if Paul pre the vision of Damascus had been kind of lukewarm on Christianity, mm-hmm. it's nowhere near as good a story. Right. right. Yeah. Dr. Pierce, I think I cut you off for there. Yeah. No, all, all I wanted to say is that I do think that in both the Pharaoh case and the Paul case, I, I agree that there's a kind of narrative in, uh, integrity and a kind of um, psychological intelligibility mm-hmm. to that it's not even though as radical as Paul's shift is, it yeah. doesn't look like someone's character changing after a brain injury. Yeah, he but, still had a reason for his actions and choices, right? Well, and yeah, well, yeah, and and there's something about his his character as a a person who you know who never does anything halfway. <laughs> That's and, true. And it has yeah. this kind of this kind of very zealous and dedicated attitude, and like he he switches sides, but he's playing for the other side in the same way as he's he played right. Right. side, right? That's and, a good point. So that's just what's the kind of what do you make of the Pharaoh story, Kenny? Well, I think it um you know, there's um there are a lot of places as as Spinoza emphasizes, though he's not someone whose biblical interpretations mm-hmm. I, I always follow. But but there are a lot of places in the in the Bible where it it talks about divine agency um, isn't necessarily distinct from natural events, right? 
that God does this or that. Um, and uh, and it does seem like the, if I recall correctly, the text actually alternates between saying God hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardened, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. That's yeah. Correct. Yeah. And so it may be that, uh, it may be the kind of part of what we want to say in the in the text is that there's not actually a strong distinction there. Um, that is, the author wrote the story this way and the character acted this way mm. are are kind of two levels of explanation. Mm. Yeah. And we might want to say that both are happening in every one of those instances. Right. And naturalistically, just looked at psychologically, there are there are choices that that um, subsequently deprive us of our freedom increasingly. Yeah. You know, like the habits of, of an addi- of an addiction, right? That are freely entered as we as we find ourselves deeper and deeper in the addiction. We you know we've lost more and more freedom. Yeah, yeah. There's intra narratival like continuity and and psychological reasons. Um, this, I wanted to, to end with one, one last question. This one's maybe more for me and like a, a therapy session here. Um, I, I, I think a lot about the simulation hypothesis because I, I work in campus ministry. A lot of student athletes that I work with will bring this up. They listen to Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman. So I've been doing a lot of like thinking about it and, and, and finding that, wow, there's a lot of overlap between the authorial analogy, which I love so much and the simulation hypothesis, which I work so ardently to try to destroy. Um, and, and, and more like the, the univocal sense of the simulation hypothesis, because yeah, maybe you can use it as a metaphor, but I think the authorial analogy is better, blah, blah, blah. Metaphors aren't as good as analogies. So anyways, um, you could pitch it as an analogy. Sure. But the univocal sense that we literally live in a computer simulation and there's just a, a human or like a ro- uh, uh, a alien. That's like one level of reality below us that they're our creator. So there's this argument. It's kind of Putnamian where Putnam, um, you know, tries to refute brain in a vat simulation, brain in a vat hypothesis, whatever, skepticism with external, uh, with content externalism. So I don't mean to bring you guys into content externalism stuff because I know that's like, that's rough, but I have this kind of, this view that um, if your work, if you're a complete sim, if you live in a simulated world, then everything you're in association with is simulated. Um, you come to think that uh, you live in a computer simulation and this world is not the most real world. Uh, it seems like you acquire a belief that uh, your beliefs aren't true or aren't true qua base reality. Um, they're true. Maybe, so um, David Chalmers has this, arg- this article, The Matrix is Metaphysics, where he's like, look, qua the matrix, Neo's views are true, but qua base reality, they're not true. And I, I think it was a similar thing. Um, for simulation hypothesis, like you, you get to believe one or the other though. If you believe that you you're living in a computer simulation, then why believe any concepts about base reality? Because like, how do you know? It seems like it's inscrutable. Um, you know, but then I, the, the, the problem here, so I'm rambling here, but the problem is then it carries over to theism and maybe idealism type stuff. How can we, um, reason about, the reality outside of the reality that we've been designed to to reason in, I guess. So like we're thinking about the nature of the world apart from the world that we live in, base reality. We're, we're living in a story, but we're talking about the author. Um, how can we do, are we able to do that without the author like revealing stuff to us? And, and do you guys see the problem here? I, I'm just totally rambling, but. I, I see the problem. I've, I've, I think we've written about it right? in mm. that, um, you know, and I bring up Putnam's, um, I bring up Putnam's response to the brain in the vat um, cool. example in my writings. And I, I've argued that 
um, if God hadn't revealed him to us, revealed himself to us, right, there might be uh, a conceptual problem that we kind of locked into the layer of reality that we're in. That's such cool. that even when we try to think about layers of reality more fundamental than our own, we somehow systematically fail because we, we're not directly acquainted with things, you know, uh, beyond our ken, yeah. directly acquainted with things. But I, I, I have two things to say about that. So, so first of all, I think some of the, some of the Hasidic masters had a similar worry and they said, oh, well, well, you know, okay. So it turns out most of the things we think when we think about God are like false or they break down, but that's okay. Um, it's a kind of a mystical attitude that says, you know, push language and logic to their very limits. You feel yourself forced to say things that by your own lights you recognize can't be quite sensible or, 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 or truth or valuable. And you allow those kind of strings of nonsense somehow to, to, to point you in the direction of ineffable truths, mm. right? And this is part of the reason why a lot of the Hasidic masters eschewed philosophy. They didn't like philosophy. You know, just live, in, live, live the life you're living and live in relationship with God. And, and when you try to think too hard about God, it's all going to break down. Yeah. And that's as it should be. I, however, don't, I don't follow them to that conclusion because I think that once God has revealed himself to us, um, he can give us the linguistic apparatus to, um, totally. to, to think about him and to think about base reality. I also have a, a paper under review that argues that it, if there is even a non-negligible negligible chance that we are a sin, then there's a much greater chance that we're characters in some story or other. Oh, uh, that's which, good. Which um, suits my suits my fears the inclusion you know so so the sim argument may be a gateway drug to uh to you yeah, that's awesome yeah dr pierce yeah uh so i would say um there's some reasons to be dubious about the amount of sense that could be made of the univocal simulation hypothesis right and the and the problem is in order for the univocal simulation hypothesis to be true um it needs to be the case that the deeper reality is correctly described by us as a computer. Right. And, and even if you don't buy the whole Putnam thing from beginning to end, there, oh, and it also needs to be, in order for it to be a skeptical hypothesis, it needs to be correctly described by us as a computer in contrast to a physical reality. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or sort of the sort of physical reality we think it is. And so part of what's going on in that Chalmers paper is, why should we think this is a skeptical hypothesis rather than a surprising discovery about the nature of reality? Mm. How is it undermining common sense beliefs about tables any more than quantum physics does? Right. Because there's right. zeros and ones instead of super strings or whatever. The, right. the underlying reality of physical nature is going to be surprising whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you think, but if, but I think, um, you know, if you're not saying it's exactly that, but you're saying, well, it's some kind of analogy. Well, then maybe you get, maybe you are making a really similar move to what yeah. a lot of theists are making, where you're yeah. like maybe talking about the intention of the intentions of the simulator is the best way to kind of understand the world and thinking yeah. of it in an agential way. There was a great, it was, uh, it must have been nearly a year ago now, there was a great um, article on The Onion about how the simulation hypothesis was confirmed 
when a giant pop-up appeared in the sky saying that you're coming to the end of your free trial. Yeah. <laughs> it had this, this whole thing about like the reason there's evil in the world is because the subscriber is too cheap to pay for a universe premium. Yeah. It's just amazing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, Dustin Crummett actually wrote a paper on that saying like we can, we can uh, collapse natural evils down to moral evils through simulation hypothesis because mm. it's, it's a simulator's fault, uh, not God's. But, but you know, he, it, that's kind of a weird view. I like him, but that's, that's, it might collapse. But um, Dr. Pierce, I actually use your uh, some of your work on, on contingency stuff to kind of run through the univocal simulation hypothesis and say, well, like, look, we still need an explanation. It, the, 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 the finite or the contingent simulator still cries out for explanation in a way that a necessary being doesn't. Um, so we can kind of run through. And then there's some, like, the, all the arguments from logic or abstracta, if those go through, they run right through all the way straight back to, to base base reality most based reality i guess yeah um yeah, so someone yeah. worried about me are we you know how do we know a story in the mind of god maybe a story in one of god's you know we, we might be lower down that mm. but the thing is as long as god's right at the top i'm okay yeah you know when we pray to god that's who we're praying to you know we're praying to the one at the very top the, or bottom however yeah well, so I've thought about that with, um, I used to try to just blast simulation hypothesis. And then I thought, well, what, where, where's the conflict here? What, what if it, what if we are like, if we are, uh, if we're somehow, if we're Sims with a, a, a consciousness like base reality image bearers of God, then would Christ sacrifice not count for, you know, a simulated Parker, like it would in a base reality park. So I wonder there's, there's theological questions, uh, Dr. Liebman's too, like you, you have different theology than us, but, so, um, just thinking like do the theological implications run down through the simulation and insofar as this reality is uh a, a good replica of base reality it seems like they would but i don't know how we'd even know that though yeah i'm not i'm not convinced that there's that there's a significant theological problem um in, in admitting in admitting the possibility that we're seeing um, yeah you know um could still be the case that you know god's will has been revealed to us you know in the simulation could still be the case you know? yeah um I, I need to think about it more to be certain but it's just not at all obvious to me that there's yeah. a big problem i m many of my theist friends uh theist philosopher friends will will and like yeah mike humor too well they'll like punt to hey look uh that that requires machine functionalism machine functionalism false we got you know chinese nation chinese room and then some of my other dualist Christian philosopher friends were like, well, if dualism's true, then perhaps we could, you know, latch onto the psychophysical laws through computation and a soul could get associated with this. I was like, dang it. Yeah. So that, that one took away my, my, uh, yeah, not obvious to me that it's not obvious to me that Nick Bostrom is right in thinking that his functionalism or his, he calls it substrate in, in, in independent. independent. Yeah. Uh, it's not, it's not clear to me that that's as pivotal to his argument as he thinks it is right. as, as you said you know it could be that it could be that certain computers get insold yeah uh, yeah yeah um well this has been awesome you guys like I, I genuinely both of you i i think the way you guys think but i'm so much back like you guys are so years ahead of me so it's so helpful to read your stuff and be like oh cool someone else thought of this wow. great like it's been a huge uh blessing to me i like i want to you know it's good for my audience but for me generally like you, both of you guys the way you think i really appreciate it this has been a super fun episode well, for me. Well, I'm, I'm honored to be compared to kenny biss so that's uh <laughs> it, not many people think as clearly as that so i'm very happy 
Thank well, you. That's, that's very flattering, but um, this, this is a great, great conversation. Thank you both. Yeah. 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 Maybe we'll have to uh, get another one going. Uh, folks, uh, you know, leave a comment, what you liked, and uh, maybe we can coax them into coming back on. For now, that's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.